Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Here's just a little uh, thing to share before we read the text. Uh, many believe that it was the prophet Samuel who wrote the book of Ruth. He was the one who not only wrote the book of Ruth, but many also believe that he wrote the book of Judges. And this will become important um, very soon. Here is the one thing that I want you to keep on the forefront of your mind today. The title of our sermon is Jesus, a Redeemer Who Waits. Jesus, a Redeemer Who Waits. But here is uh, the three words that I want you to kind of keep on the forefront of your mind as you think about all that you're going to hear today, here's a, here's a slide that you can think of. Here's what it says. Decisions have consequences. I want you just to think about that for a moment. Decisions have consequences. And the decisions we make to try to avoid dealing with our problems will only make things worse. Let me say that again. The decisions we make to try to avoid dealing with our problems will only make things worse. And our poor decisions, they won't only just impact us, but they will also impact the people around us. This is what we see here happening right at the beginning of the book of Ruth. And we see how bad decisions bring, about, bring upon bad consequences. Yet God remains waiting and he waits for people to recognize their sin and their bad decision. And he waits for them to turn back to him so that he can redeem them and their bad decisions. So let's read together. Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 to 5. And today we're talking about Jesus, a, better, a redeemer who waits. Let's read together the text. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And he was left, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpha and the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The first point I want to make as we look into our text is knowing the problem. Verse 1. The beginning of verse 1 starts off by saying, in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
the author, Samuel, he is placing the events of the book of Ruth into a specific time period in Israel's history. And like every great storyteller, he begins with a crisis, a really big problem. There was a famine in the land. So we know when these events take place and why. And at first glance, everything seems to be really straightforward. Yet the author wants us to know what has led up to this moment or else we're not going to understand why the characters in our story make the decisions that they do. So remember, decisions have consequences. So we need to understand what happens, what was happening in the days when judges ruled. So just here's a little bit of the context of us understanding where this book finds itself right here in chapter 1. You see, the time of judges in Israel's history was a very dark period. The nation found itself in a destructive cycle of sin. Look at the very last words in the book of Judges. So the book of Judges is just a book right before Ruth. So if you just flip your page over one, look at the very last sentence in the book of Judges. That would be Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Look at what Samuel tells us here. This is what it was like in the days when the judges ruled. In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. At this point, Israel had turned its back on God. And instead of following him and his word, they did what was right in their own eyes. You see, this sets the stage for the book of Ruth. How did Israel come to the place of trusting in themselves and doing what was right in their own eyes instead of what God had commanded them. Well, let's go back a little bit in history. God uses Joshua to lead Israel to take possession of the promised land. And if you remember our theme verse, just like Aresi mentioned today, You'll remember that at the beginning of the year, we preached on this. God tells Joshua and the people, be strong and courageous. He tells them this just as they are about to go into the promised land to take possession of it. Once the land had been conquered, it was divided into different portions for the 12 tribes of Israel. God gave Israel very clear instructions on what to do once they took possession of the land. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 to 9. This is really important. I want to encourage you to go there. So you just keep flipping to the left in your Bible. Okay? We're going to be looking at Deuteronomy. As we look at the, where the Bible starts, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Bible. Okay? Open up to chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 2 to verses 9 together. It's really important that we read this to understand 
the historical background of how we get to the days of Ruth. And this is what it says. And when the Lord your God gives you, gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not, inter, you shall not in, inmarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. And he will destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their craved images with fire. For you are a holy people of the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all of the peoples you are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than all of the other people that the Lord set, set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. So what's the plan? This is what God tells Israel to do once they take possession of the land. He says, first, make sure that you make no covenant with the people that you are conquering. Make no promises with them, but instead make sure that you destroy and get rid of all of them. The second thing that they are to do is make sure that you do not marry any of the people of the land. Do not give your daughters to their sons, nor allow your sons to take their daughters in marriage. Why? Well, because God knew that these marriages would cause Israel to turn away from him and to serve the gods of the people that they married. If they did so, God said that he would bring judgment upon Israel. Third, they were to make no way to serve the gods of the people that they were conquering. They were to, they were to destroy all of the pagan gods. They were to tear down the altars and burn the pillars. They were to, 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 to get all of the engraved images and to destroy everything and leave nothing left. Why should Israel follow these instructions? Why should Israel do what God is commanding them? Well, he tells them why in verses 6 to 8 of the text that we just read. Because God says that Israel is his holy people. That he has chosen them, that he loves them, that he has redeemed them from slavery, from the bondage of Egypt, and that now he was giving them this promised land. You see, God promises to be with Israel and to cause them to prosper if they are willing to obey God and his commands. 
But if they disobey, God also tells them that they will be judged and that they will have to face his punishment. You see, God is trying to teach Israel here that their decisions have consequences. That there is blessing where there is obedience, but that there is judgment where there is disobedience. And in those moments when Israel turns away from God, God will bring judgment. And he will bring judgment to get Israel's attention so that they can turn back to God. Repent, leaving the pagan gods behind to once again embrace him as his redeemer and to live according to his will. We learn what it says in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, that God disciplines those he loves. Look at what it says in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. It says, my son... Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. You see, God does not punish to destroy. He punishes to restore. Israel decides to follow God's command. And everything goes great in the land that they have taken until Joshua dies. Now, without a leader, instead of turning to God, Israel chooses to do what is right in their own eyes instead of trusting in God. And now, we begin to see the vicious cycle of sin that Israel finds itself in that we can read through in the book of Judges, which is the book that comes just before Ruth. It's, it's really important that we understand very quickly this cycle of sin that is described in the book of Judges. There were four stages. Here they are very quickly. The first stage is that Israel would turn away from God and they did so by what we just read. They did so by marrying the women of the land that they had conquered and by worshiping their false gods. So the first stage is sin. The second stage was servitude. God would use the very nations that God told them to destroy to come and raid and attack Israel and to enslave them. Now Israel was no longer free, just like in Egypt. Now they were under the oppression of these pagan nations. Third, we see supplication. Then Israel would cry out to God to have mercy on them because they finally recognized their sin. And fourthly, we then see salvation. God would then raise up a judge, someone to deliver Israel from their oppression. And then they would experience peace. We see this cycle happening seven different times throughout the book of Judges. Israel sins, and then they are enslaved, and then they cry out to God. 
They supplicate. And then finally, God brings salvation. He brings a judge to bring deliverance. And while that judge is alive, Israel is at peace. But once the judge who had delivered them dies, guess what Israel does? They turn away from God again and begin to worship false gods. You might be thinking, wow, God brought judgment upon his people when they turned away from him. Yes, he did. But that's only half of it. God also showed mercy and kindness by redeeming his people again and again. We see God's mercy and we see how much he loves his people. He demonstrates his kindness by forgiving Israel again and again. You might be thinking, I thought we were going through the book of Ruth. And we are. <laughs> but we need to understand the book of Judges because what happens in the book of Ruth actually takes place at the same time as the events of Judges during this same historical period in time. Actually, the events of Ruth take place somewhere in the middle of the book of Judges. Now, coming back to our text. Now we know what the days when the Judges ruled were like. It was a time of this vicious, sinful cycle. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Ruth 1.1 continues and says that there was a great famine in the land. And now we know why there was a great famine in the land. God brings a severe famine to the region of Bethlehem. And this is not the result of drought. This is not the result of a food shortage. It's the result of people's disobedience. God's trying to get their attention. They're facing these consequences because of their bad decisions. Because decisions have consequences. You see, this is the problem. And the people of Bethlehem, they know it. And this is where our story begins. Everyone knows what the problem is. Our second point, the rest of verses 1 and 2, is running from the problem. Running from the problem. The rest of verses 1 and 2 introduce us to some of the characters in the book of Ruth. A man from Bethlehem named Elimelech faces a defining moment in his life. How is he going to respond to this famine? Now let me just say this. Defining moments in our lives, they always provide an opportunity for us to make hard decisions. And these hard decisions that we make, they will have consequences and they will shape our present and our future. But the decisions that we make will not only impact ourselves, they will also impact the people around us. And in these moments... We can either turn to God and learn to trust Him, or we can continue doing what is right in our own eyes. Elimelech decides 
to take his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Chilion, and into the land of Moab. The name of the city that Elimelech is from is called Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Elimelech is also from the tribe of Judah, and his family, they are also Ephrathites. Originally, the city of Bethlehem was called Ephrath, which means place of fruitfulness. It was called that because that region was very fertile. <laughs> the author wants us to know that the place where there was supposed to be bread and a ton, an abundance of vegetation is dry and barren. There is nothing to eat in this place. What does Elimelech do? He decides to sojourn in Moab. What does that mean? It means that Elimelech intended to be in Moab just for a little while. Moab is only supposed to be a temporary solution. He's not planning on laying down roots there. He's just trying to get his family through this famine. And so they immigrate to Moab. And in Elimelech's mind, he has no other choice. This is the best thing to do for his family. He's doing this, he's doing this for the physical well-being of his family while completely ignoring the spiritual consequences that it will bring. Let me say that again. Elimelech is doing this for the physical well-being of his family while completely ignoring the spiritual consequences that it will bring. The truth is, Elimelech can stay. And he should stay in Bethlehem because Moab is not a good place. It is an idolatrous pagan country that wants nothing to do with the God of Israel. It should be avoided at all costs. <clears throat> and the Limelech knows this. Now, I just want you to hold on to your seats for one moment here. Why should a Limelech not go to Moab? Well, because in Genesis 19, we learn about how the people of Moab start. And it starts from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. Did you hear what I said? If your kids need you to explain that to them, I'll leave that to you parents to help them figure it out. After Lot flees from Sodom and Gomorrah with his two daughters. They go to Zoar. But Lot is afraid of the people of Zoar. So what do they do? They choose to hide in the mountains, all three of them. Now, his two daughters, they begin to lose hope about their prospective futures. Their father is getting old. They have no men to marry, and they have no children. So 
they devise up a plan. They say, hey, let's get dad drunk. And let's get dad drunk on different occasions so that each one of us can have sex with dad so that we can have children of our own. And this is exactly what they do. You see, this is what happens when you don't trust God and instead do what is right in your own eyes. Remember, decisions have consequences. So the eldest daughter, the eldest daughter has a son and names him Moab. The youngest daughter also has a son and she names him Amon. Lot is Abraham's nephew. From Abraham comes the nation of Israel. And from Lot, his nephew, come the Moabites and the Ammonites. Did you hear me? They are Israel's enemies. This one family is now fighting against each other. Actually, the Moabites and the Ammonites... They enslaved Israel during the time of judges, repeatedly. But listen, going to Moab is not the problem. The reason Elimelech is taking his family into enemy territory is because he is unwilling to recognize his own sin and repent. Did you hear me? You might look at this and say, wow, Elimelech is a great father. He's doing the right thing. Actually, he isn't. He's doing the wrong thing. And he's doing it for the wrong reasons. You see, Elimelech's name means God is my king. Yet, he has turned his back on God. And he has disobeyed God's commands. His sin has contributed to the famine in Bethlehem. He is part of the problem. Elimelech's problem, it isn't physical. It is spiritual. He is again doing what is right in his own eyes. Instead of turning back to God, he takes the easy way out by running away to live a new life in a new place. He is running from the problem. And listen, Elimelech isn't just turning his back on God. He's also turning his back on the land that God had given him. You see, the promised land, it was a special place. It was where God had ordained his blessings and his provision. Elimelech is saying, in other words, God, I don't need you or what you have given to me. I don't want to acknowledge my wrongdoing. I want to do it my way. Kind of sounds like Frank Sinatra. Huh? I did it my way? Well, Elimelech is trying to blaze his own path, doing things according to his own understanding. And what he is doing is, he is alienating himself and his family from God's blessing and protection by going to Moab. And this is only going to make the problem worse because of his unresolved sin. Okay, here's some application. 
Does any of this sound familiar to you? Because it should. Because this is many times the way you and I think in our own minds as we try to navigate how to make important decisions in our own lives. But let me tell you, changing scenery is not going to make your problems go away. Did you hear me? Not only will changing your geographical place not change the problem, it won't change the fact that you haven't dealt with your sin. Avoiding disobedience by moving to a different place, it will never solve the problem. And this is how people today try to deal with their own brokenness and sin. Instead of accepting their sin, humbling themselves, and turning to Jesus and repent, people try to bring newness into their life to keep themselves distracted. And listen, it might work for a little while, yet our sin will eventually catch up with us. Did you hear me? Our unresolved sin will eventually catch up with us. When you run from your sin, you are running from God. And things don't get better. They just get worse. I remember speaking with a married woman whose husband had cheated on her multiple times. And instead of confronting his sin, she thought that the best thing to do was to move out of the city and to go to the suburbs. She believed that this was going to solve the problem. But guess what? It didn't. And her husband continued cheating, even in the suburbs. Why? Because the problem wasn't the city. And the problem wasn't the other women. It was her husband who had a problem. And who had sin that he was unwilling to address and to resolve. Now this woman found herself far from her extended family who, was, who were the ones who were supporting her when she was close. And now she felt alone and isolated. You see, sin, it isn't a geographical problem. It's a problem of the heart. So no matter where you go, your sin is going to follow you until you allow Jesus to redeem your heart. Men, listen carefully. I want to speak to you for a moment right now. If you're married or young guys, if you're planning to get married, and I hope that you are, I want you to know that God calls us to lead our families. We're responsible for the spiritual, emotional, physical, and material well-being of our families. The decisions that you make have a significant impact on your wife and on your children. If you're not seeking God, obeying His ways, and addressing your sin, know that your family is going to suffer as a result. If your heart isn't set on following Jesus and his word, you're going to be tempted to make decisions that are right according to your own understanding and not his commands. Listen, 
you might be asking. But William, how do I know God's commands? Well, we have the Bible, which is God's word. And I want to encourage you and challenge you to meditate on God's word day and night so that you know how to faithfully lead your family to God and not to run away from God. I want to leave this word with you. You see, God, and just before Deuteronomy 6, he's still talking to Israel about what it's going to look like as they take possession of the land. And I want you to see what God tells Israel, what he commands them to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. I want you to go there. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 9. And men, I want to challenge you to stand on these words as you lead your family. Listen very carefully to what God says here to you and I. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your head and you shall be and they shall be a fortlet between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates. Men, make this the theme of your life. Make this the goal for you and your family that in every opportunity that you have, that you would be leading and drawing your wife and your children to Jesus Christ. That you would know his word so much to the point that in every conversation that you have, that you are talking about God and his word and his truth. From the moment that you wake up, from the moment that you lie down, at every meal, at every conversation that you would have, that you would be, be so drenched with the word of God so that you could lead your family well to God and not running away from God. Because, guys, we don't run from our problems. We look at them in the eyes and we face them. So we understand today that we need to know the problem. And that we can't run from the problem. And look at number three here, our final point. Trying to fix the problem. Verses three and five, the remainder of our text. And yes, I know it's ready, 11.15. This is my final point. We'll be wrapping up soon so that you guys can go treat your mothers to a lovely Mother's Day lunch. Elimelech and his family, they escape the famine. And life is good in Moab. Yet their sin catches up with them because it's still unresolved. As the leader of his family, Elimelech is ultimately responsible for their sin. Did you hear that, man? Elimelech is ultimately responsible for the sin of his family. And in verse 3, he dies in Moab. Listen, his spiritual problem ends up affecting the whole family in a physical way. Did you hear me? 
Elimelech's spiritual problem has now affected the whole family in a physical way. While he was trying to bring well-being to the physical well-being of his family because of his unwillingness to deal with his spiritual problem. Remember what we said from the beginning? Decisions have consequences. Now Naomi is widowed alone with her two sons. And while in the midst of her grief, Naomi faces her own defining moment. Is she going to stay in Moab and continue running from God? Or is she going to return to Bethlehem to acknowledge her sin? But instead of returning to Bethlehem to repent and acknowledge her sin, Naomi decides to follow in the footsteps of her husband Elimelech. She doesn't need God. Her own greatest obstacle in returning back to Bethlehem is her own pride. She thinks, things aren't really that bad. I still have both of my sons. I'm living a good life and my sons will take care of me. You see, Naomi trusts her sons more than she does her God. Did you hear that? Naomi trusts her sons more than she trusts her God. Yet, she's in a place far from God, far from her people, and she is comfortable living in a godless place. Not only does Naomi refuse to turn back with her sons to Bethlehem, but in verse 4, we also see that she does nothing to stop her sons from further sinning against God by marrying Moabite women, making the problem even worse. You see, this is usually what happens when we try to fix the problem according to our own understanding. We just muddle it, compound it, and make things worse. You see, Naomi knows God's commands. Her sons, Malon and Chilion, they are forbidden from marrying pagan women according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. We've already read this text. She is responsible for teaching her boys the word of God. Yet, it's hard to teach the word of God when you aren't following God yourself. Did you hear me? It's hard to teach the word of God when you yourself are not following the word of God. Malon and Chilion are literally sleeping with the enemy. Now Orpha and Ruth join the family. These two Moabite women were finally introduced to the main character of our book, Ruth, a pagan woman. And for 10 years, everything looks great. Life is good. And there is nothing to worry about. But then in verse 5, more tragedy comes Naomi's way. Both of her sons die. 
Remember, decisions have consequences. We see in our text this morning, two weddings and three funerals. Now, there is no one left to carry on the family name. Orpha and Ruth are widows also, and they have given birth to no children while married. They are left with nothing. And this is where we end in our text today. Let me just finish off by saying this. Pride is one of the worst things that will compound our problems. When we choose to dig in, you and I will only make things worse. Not only for us, but also for the people around us. Pride prevents us from humbling ourselves to accept our mistakes. And in the end, everyone loses out. Why? Because our children are witnessing the hardness of our hearts. And instead of seeing parents who are humble and who acknowledge their mistakes and who repent and who make things right, they see parents who are focused on doing what is right according to their own understanding instead of following God's commands. God deliver us from our pride because if we are unwilling to humble ourselves, it will eventually spell disaster for everyone. So what do we take out of our text today? <clears throat> we know clearly that God has given us his word to follow. He's given us his commands the same way that he had given Israel and Elimelech and his family. And as we learn God's word, we look at our lives and we become aware of our sin and we see where we are making poor decisions the same way that Elimelech did. And here is the question. Are we willing to humble ourselves and repent when we see the sin of our lives, when we acknowledge where we have a problem, where we are running from God, and when we are trying to fix things our own ways and only making it worse, will we humble ourselves and turn back to God and repent? Today we learn that Jesus, our Redeemer, is waiting for us to turn back to him. You see, one of the greatest problems that is plaguing the church today is unresolved sin. And the longer that you and I refuse to acknowledge our sin and address it, the more suffering will come our way. But it won't just be we who suffer. All of those around us will also suffer. And yet Jesus is patiently waiting for you and I. And he is gracious. He wants to free us from cycles of sin. He wants to grab our attention 
through the hardship that comes our way. You see, Jesus waited for the Samaritan woman at the well. You see, she could stop running from sin, moving on from this man to this man, from this relationship to this relationship. Jesus comes all the way to Samaria to wait at the well for this one woman. Why? Because he wanted to redeem her from her sin. She could stop running. You and I need to stop running and to recognize and accept our sin. You see, running is only going to make things worse. Listen, this is a defining moment for you and I. Jesus, our Redeemer, is waiting. Let us take the opportunity to come back to Him. Let us pray. Mighty God, Jesus, we thank You that You are the Redeemer who waits. And You wait. And as we come to your word, and as we learn your word, we see where there is sin in our lives. We see where we have made poor and bad decisions. We acknowledge that there are many times that instead of doing what you want, we choose to run away. But in running away, God, we are just making things worse because we choose to not resolve our sin. God, we hold on to our pride. We want to do things our way, according to what is right in our eyes. But humble us, we pray. Lord, we know, we learn today that you use suffering. You bring judgment, not to destroy, but to restore us, because you love us, because we are your people. And you want us to turn back to you so that you can even redeem our bad decisions and bring life where there before is death. God, help us. Help us stop running. Help us hear today that you are waiting for us, Jesus. That you want to redeem our poor decisions. That you want to restore Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're wondering what good is going to come out of our text, you're going to have to wait until next week to see how God redeems Naomi and this story. God bless you. I want to remind you that Pastor Monica has sent you parents into your inboxes the lesson for this week. I encourage you, take time, find time to go through God's word together as a family, to pray, to ask the questions with each other. Participate, get involved with our new campaign. Be generous, we pray. Let's worship God together now as we respond.